Let's go back to a time when giant birds ruled Australia, about a hundred years ago, on this episode of Delicious History. History is a podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, you can check out our social media at Delicious History Podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. You can also go to our website, delicioushistorypodcast.com. This episode has been brought to you by Awards Co. You know what? It's never a good time to not let people know how much you appreciate them, especially with the great resignation, people leaving in droves. You need to show people now more than ever how much they mean to you. And you know how you do that? Awards, of course. Plus, don't forget that school's starting now and we have sports seasons going into full gear. Awards Co. has trophies, medals, plaques, anything you can imagine for your tournaments and championships. And listeners of Delicious History get 10% off by using the code DM10 on your next order at awardsco.com. And let me tell you something. Unlike some of those other companies out there that advertise on podcasts or YouTube videos or whatnot and gives you this discount, but actually you can just get the discount no matter what, Awardsco isn't like that. So if you want that 10% discount, make sure to use DM10 on your next order at awardsco.com. I'm going to tell you a little something. I love doing this show, and I know that sometimes it's not always as regular as much as we like it to be, but the fact is, it's always the highlight of my week or month or you know half year, or whatever the chance I, I get to end up doing it. And this started out as a hobby because, you know, the pandemic and nothing better to do, but it really turned out to be something bigger than that. The community of this show, despite, honestly, me not really doing that much to cultivate that community like other podcasts do, has really reached out and made it really worth the effort. You know, one particular place that I wouldn't think I'd be getting a lot of listeners from is Australia. In particular, Western Australia, which, as far as I knew, didn't really have a lot of people. But considering how many of you from west of the outback are listening, I figured I'd do a special show just for you. Frankly, I've been looking for an excuse to do this because I also just find it incredibly interesting and hilarious and sad and everything all at once. But let's talk about the single most important food-related story from West Australia. For some, you might be wondering why I specifically am talking about West Australia, West Australia, West Australia. And that's because most of the cities, when we think about Australia, like Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, which, by the way, is the capital, and I totally knew that before looking it up, these are cities that typically are found on the east or southern coasts of the continent, or island, or whatever you want to call it. Western Australia hasn't really been much of a place for development, and as a result, you really don't get to find that many major settlements there. Apparently, if these statistics are true, just about every person who lives in Western Australia listens to this show. Now, to understand why this is the case, but being few people, not why everyone listens to the show, that's obvious. I think it's best if we take a minute to understand why Australia is Australia. Some of us have the idea of Australia being this British penal colony, which it certainly was, but it's a lot more complicated than that. First and foremost, 
We, of course, have to mention the Aboriginal peoples of Australia, who have been there for many thousands of years before the British ever set their eyes to the island, and are considered to be one of the oldest civilizations in the world. What we consider to be modern-day Australia started in 1788 when the first fleet was sent from Britain to establish a patchwork of colonies, with many, but not all, being penal colonies. When we think of the idea of sending someone to a faraway land, it may be assumed that it was due to a horrible crime. But the fact was that most of these criminals were sent to Australia were actually petty criminals, and that they were just convicted of multiple crimes. In reality, much like we've seen with Russians sending their prisoners to Siberia, this was really just an excuse for the British crown to send undesirables to be free laborers in a faraway land. One of the things that I find particularly interesting is that many of these criminals were made to be laborers for free persons, who were there developing their own farms and plantations. Kinda sounds like a slavery situation. And you know what? I'm not the first person to say that. And because of these rather shady practices, there were uprisings that led to military law for years at a time because of convict uprisings. It should also be noted that the center of Australia is not really conducive to large-scale settlements. After all, this is the outback, and I'm not just talking about the steakhouse. And by the way, just as a quick aside, I recently found out that not only is Outback Steakhouse obviously not really Australian, but that the founders of the company never even went to Australia before they started the restaurant. I mean, so I don't really know where they get all this stuff from, but blooming onions are incredible, and if any Australians are offended by the whole idea of Outback Steakhouse, you really should just go out there and try a blooming onion, and I think you'll be okay. The more I think about it, it kind of seems like how Italians feel about Olive Garden after they try the breadsticks. Anyway, the coast is really the area that's been the most conducive to settlement for Europeans, and therefore we're going to find the major cities. But obviously there are still areas that can be developed, especially if infrastructure is put into place to do so. This is exactly what happened after World War I, and the Australian government started to put programs in place to give free or low-cost land to soldiers coming back from Europe. New irrigation and other infrastructure projects were put in place to make it a more suitable location for farming and wheat farming in particular. Now, why wheat? Well, the diet of many Australians is based on wheat, and it's obviously needed as a staple crop. The government figured out that if large-scale wheat production could be done in Western Australia, then it could become self-sufficient for at least their basic needs, and even make a profit by selling bumper crops on the commodities market. In fact, wheat was such a big export for the entire country at the time. These overnight farmers made arrangements with the government, all of them returning veterans from the war. The small towns of Campion and Walgulin were the closest bit of civilizations for these new wilderness farm settlements. As a side note, of the 800 or so Aboriginal soldiers returning from the war, sadly only about three of them had their application approved, with a lot of this land actually being taken away from the Aboriginal to be given to the soldiers in the first place. That really doesn't play a role in this story, but I think it's important to include that. Along with the improvements that had been done in the area, there were also some promises by the Australian government who would guarantee prices for the new wheat farmers in the event that the prices didn't make growing the wheat profitable. Unfortunately, prices plummeted, especially during the Great Depression of the 1930s, but the government was nowhere to be seen. This caused massive friction between the veterans and the government, and things got so bad that in 1932, most of the farmers decided they weren't even going to bring any wheat to market as a protest. Just when it seemed like a mini-civil war was about to take place, a savior came from over the horizon. 
well, 20,000 saviors, and also they weren't really saviors so much as a big plague, but at least they stopped the people from getting mad at each other. Yes, my friends, we're talking about a giant herd of emus. If you don't know what an emu is, or emu as some say, think about an ostrich that looks less like a French maid and more like a killing machine. They're about six foot tall and look pretty ferocious, or cute, depending on when you happen upon them. Now, I've seen them before in person, and they seemed all right, but I assumed if you had 20,000 of them to converge in my wheat field at the same time, I may not have that same opinion. They run in packs looking for sparse supplies in the harshest parts of Australia, which means that they're fast and tough, and also they have six-inch claws. These claws are generally used for digging, but can very easily be used for self-defense as well. Since these animals are used to eking out an existence in very harsh landscapes, when they saw these endless wheat fields and the irrigation needed to prop them up, they were thinking that this was their day. They died and went to heaven or the Rainbow Bridge or wherever ferret owners seem to think that animals go when they die. And even though there were a lot of emus out there, they didn't actually eat all the wheat. But anything they didn't eat, they would, for some reason, destroy. Like, they would actually destroy the plants and the fencing and everything around it. So not only would the plants and crops be destroyed, but you would also be letting in other animals like rabbits, which are also a problem in Australia. And that's a whole other story. Oh yeah, and plus they were like, just going to town, pooping on everything like your gluten intolerant friend after accidentally eating half a pizza. Something we should note at this point is that the emus didn't just show up all of a sudden in 1932. Emus had been around for a while, and even as far back as 1923, farmers were able to have them legally recognized as vermin. What the government ended up doing in response was to pay a bounty on anyone who brought dead emus, which helped to keep the situation in check for the time being. But the fact that there were 20,000 emus converging on these wheat fields at once is what really changed the game. Between the poultry bounty hunters and farmers' rifles, there was really no way they could ever be a match to this giant plague of emus. But being that they were veterans from the First World War, they started to remember a little thing called a Lewis gun. Lewis guns, for those who aren't in the know, were one of the first production light machine guns, and they were able to fire off 550 rounds a minute. But being as how this was Australia, not the United States, they couldn't just walk into a hardware store and get a machine gun. Now, I know you might be thinking, making fun of the United States, but keep in mind that you could actually buy a Tommy gun in a hardware store at the same time, which was why the mafia was able to do what they did. So since we're talking about West Australia, not Chicago, these veterans went to a guy by the name of George Pierce, who was a senator for West Australia at the time. George Pierce was in a unique position because the country of Australia itself was actually quite new at the time. It was only 30 years old. So when people started getting rowdy in this part of the country, there was frequent talk of secession. Obviously, being the government representative of an area that secedes doesn't look so good on your resume. So he started to look into options and ways to compromise to bring down tempers. But in addition to just being your standard politician that just wants your votes, he also understood that these farmers had been promised a lot and were delivered nothing. So he was very much on their side, despite wanting to do everything he could to avoid secession. So what do you think a reasonably minded politician would say when a group of rebelliously minded wheat farmers asked to be given machine guns to kill some birds? Well, I mean, of course, the answer was yes, but there were some conditions that he stipulated. First of all, they would provide two Lewis machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition, 
which were only to be handled by active-duty military. Major Meredith, supported by Sergeant McMurray and Gunner O'Halloran, were sent to handle the operation. Their room and board would be handled by the local people. Even though nothing like this had really ever been done before, George Pierce was so sure that it was going to be like shooting fish in a barrel, he actually insisted that a cameraman come down and document the entire operation. After all, politicians just love to have their accomplishments out for the whole world to see, right? Really, nobody thought anything could come of this except for a fast, sure victory. The soldiers that had been sent there actually had official requests from the Royal Mounted Infantry to bring them back 100 emu skins and feathers so they could make hats. Because the first thing I think of when I go off to war is, what kind of hats can I bring back? Now prepared, Meredith and his men mounted their guns and convened on the town of Campion, ready to start which could only be a quick victory. But despite surviving the horrors of the fields of Flanders, these men had no idea what was waiting for them. What happens to the wheat fields? What happens to McMurray and the emus? And perhaps most importantly, what happened to those hats? We'll find out in part two of the Great Emu War. Until next time, this has been Dave Militello reminding you that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. Delicious.